Nova Ukraine, and UNICEF USA. Hello from the employees of the Commonwealth Club. As the world watches in horror the atrocities in Ukraine, the Commonwealth Club is highlighting important organizations providing humanitarian aid to the victims of this war. Nova Ukraine and UNICEF USA are partnering to support children and families devastated by the war in Ukraine. Together, they will be providing life-saving assistance where it matters most by providing emergency access to water, delivering health, hygiene, and education supplies, establishing blue dot centers to concentrate delivery of emergency services, and more. We encourage you to learn more about how to support this important work by visiting give.novaukraine.org UNICEF. Your donations are 100% secure and tax-deductible, and your contribution will help support relief on the ground in Ukraine. That's give.novaukraine.org slash UNICEF. Thank you for listening. Michelle Miao Show at the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm John Zipperer, the club's vice president of media and editorial, and Michelle's co-host for the show. Thanks for joining us today for this program featuring Dr. Samuel Close Hineke, discussing the topics raised in his new book, States of Liberation, Gay Men Between Dictatorship and Democracy in Cold War Germany. First, a quick note. The Commonwealth Club is producing hundreds of programs a year, even throughout the pandemic. We're doing programs that are online, like this one today, as well as in-person programs. So head over to commonwealthclub.org slash MMS for more upcoming programs, as well as video and audio of past events. And if you're watching us live on YouTube, put some questions in the uh, chat box there on YouTube, and uh, we'll work them into our discussion today. Now, it's my pleasure to introduce Michelle Miao. She's the producer and host of The Michelle Miao Show and a member of the Commonwealth Club's Board of Governors. Good to see you again, Michelle. Thank you so much, Samuel Close Huniki, for being with us and our discussion about his book, States of Liberation, Gay Men Between Dictatorship and Democracy in Cold War Germany. Welcome, Samuel. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to getting into it. Let's begin with your own interest in the topic that led to this book and answering the question of what happened to queers in Cold War Germany. Okay. Um, so, uh, yeah, so that's a really great question. I've, um, you know, I, I'm a German historian by training and I'm a gay man. Um, and I've been interested in the queer history of um, Germany for a really long time. I sort of, my interest in Germany began as a kid, actually. Uh, I was living uh, in Bonn, which was the capital of Germany at the time. It was the capital of uh, the old Federal Republic, West Germany. Um, and uh, then um, it, it was uh, reunified Germany's capital for 10 years until Berlin became the capital. So I was living there with my family for about six months, and that's when I started learning German, and I sort of developed a real interest in uh, German culture and language and history, and that just grew as I got older. And then when I you know, began the process of sort of discovering my own sexuality, um, coming out and so forth, that's when I really started exploring queer history um, and queer German history in particular. So when I was an undergraduate, I started researching um, in particular queer culture and queer literature in Germany. I wrote my BA thesis on the works of Klaus Mann, who was the first sort of major out gay writer um, in German history. He was the son of Thomas Mann, who was the Nobel Prize winner in literature. 
And uh, so, so that was sort of how that interest developed. And then when I went to graduate school to study uh, modern European history at Stanford University, uh, I just sort of continued to research, continued looking into these questions, um, the history of sexuality in, in Nazi Germany and in the Weimar period and in Imperial Germany in these decades before uh, had been fairly well studied. And I was really curious about what had happened to queer people, to gay men and lesbians in particular, um, in Germany after World War II, and what had sort of brought them from the moment of extreme persecution under the Nazi government all the way up to today, where Berlin and Germany are really considered to be sort of queer meccas. Your book gets into a, a lot of fascinating details on how on the life and the, the legal status of things, especially, I think, when we get into the 1980s, or there's a some developments that I didn't, you know, would not have expected at all. Um, but I want to kind of start off at the, at the beginning, which is your book looks, looks at state policy toward homosexuality, specifically gay males. Mm -hmm. It's not an examination of the general populace's treatment of homosexuality, except insofar as, you know, the government's policy anticipates or reacts to public sentiment. So talk a bit about why that focus and, and why did you choose that? Yeah. Um, so essentially what I'm, you know, really looking at in this book are, are sort of, as you, you said, um, gay persecution and then liberation. And in both cases, it's really about the relationship between queer people and, and especially gay men um, and state power in both East Germany and West Germany. And, you know, I think... Uh, Part of my reason for that is that uh, for a long time, the history of sexuality, queer history, um, tended to look more at things like the formation of identity, um, sort of cultures around sexuality, uh, and, and didn't pay as much attention to state power and to the effects that states could have on expressions of sexuality and on um, sort of the, the life possibilities for queer people. And so one thing that I really wanted to examine in this in this book and to sort of make a case for is that the state actually is incredibly important in terms of how queer people can express themselves in terms of their life opportunities. Um, and so that's really one of the main points that I was, um, I guess, trying to make in, in how I was framing it. Um, there are also other sort of, I guess, um, more prosaic reasons. One has to do with sources. Historians, I think, um, maybe people who read history casually or are interested in history don't always um, think about this or, or realize this, but historians are very much bound by the sources that we have available to us, right? We, we go off into the archives. Um, I also interviewed uh, over 20 individuals for this book who, who had lived through this period. Um, and a lot of the stories and the sources and the, the material that I had to work with was about that relationship between queer people and the state and how um, the state sort of both thought of queer people and then how queer people were representing themselves to the state, whether whether that is courts or the police or politicians. And so, you know, I'm certainly very interested in how uh, the sort of heterosexual majority in Germany thought of queerness and how they perhaps engaged with queer people in, in their daily lives. Um, but it's harder to find sources for those that sort of a history. Um, and it, as I said, it wasn't quite the sort of, um, I guess, intellectual project I wanted to pursue in this. Oh, I can't hear you. <laughs> I think Michelle's connection <laughs> is still being worked on. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and ask another question. And that is, so essential to all of this is, is what people may have heard about before with, you know, it's paragraph 175. Right. And, and, you know, this stretches not just through decades, but through regimes going way back. So 
why don't you just kind of set the table there for, for folks who don't know about this. Take us way back, as you do in the book, to Imperial Germany and yeah. what is happening and how does it get codified into law? Yeah, so so for those who aren't familiar, paragraph 175 is the law. It's the paragraph of the criminal code that criminalizes male homosexuality. And as you said, it is in some form on the books in Germany uh, from its inception in 1871 all the way up until 1994. So this is a paragraph with a really long history. When it's finally repealed in 1994, one of the parliamentarians who is responsible for repealing it describes it as the most famous law in German history. So this is, you know, something that Germans are, are still familiar with. Um, and as you said, its origins are in Imperial Germany. In 1871, um, Chancellor Otto von Bismarck, who I'm sure your listeners uh, will have heard of, um, he unifies all of the German states into the German Empire, which is sort of the German nation state as we are familiar with it today. And at that point, they introduce a new penal code, a new criminal code for this new country. And they essentially adopt the um, Prussian measure that banned male homosexuality at the time. And that law, and that, that's what becomes paragraph 175. And this law, it, it's really important, only uh, criminalized penetrative acts between men. Uh, so this means essentially oral or anal sex. And what this meant is it was quite hard to get convictions um, because essentially you had to prove in a court of law that these specific acts had taken place. It wasn't enough to prove that two people had, say, um, spent the night together. And so convictions in the late 19th century and early 20th century remain fairly low. They're generally below 1,000 per year. What the Nazis do, so the Nazis come into power in 1933, and they are incredibly hostile to really any form of queerness. Um, they're particularly, as a, a male-dominated movement, they are particularly paranoid about male homosexuality within the ranks of the Nazi party, um, within their various paramilitary organizations. That fear is actually heightened um, by the fact that Ernst Röhm, who maybe some of your listeners are familiar with, um, that he was the head of the Nazi paramilitary stormtroopers, and he was a more or less openly uh, gay man. And he was purged uh, in 1934, one year into, into Nazi rule. And so the Nazis have this real fear about gay men within their ranks. Um, they're worried that gay men sort of uh, go and recruit um, youth into homosexuality. They call it the seduction of youth. Uh, and so there's this real fear, and that leads to them... Um, passing a sort of expanded version of paragraph 175 in 1935. Um, and this expanded version criminalizes any conduct that can be conceived of or, or viewed as homosexual in nature. And so as you might expect, and, and as was intended, this allows for many more uh, prosecutions and convictions. And so convictions under this law go from about 800 a year to 8,000 a year. And as a result of this, you have over 50,000 convictions of gay men in the 12 years of Nazi rule. You have um, somewhere between five and 15,000 men uh, who are sent to concentration camps. That's where they wear the pink triangle, uh, which is obviously today a symbol of gay liberation. Um, you know, I think of uh, above the Castro in the hills, there's always a giant pink triangle during Pride Month. Um, and uh, uh, that sort of is what is the baseline then for how both East Germany and West Germany in the post-war period deal with um, 
deal with gay men. Um, and that's sort of the, the starting point for my book. And they both kind of retain it, but they do it differently. Talk about that. Right, right. No, so, and that's one of the real, you know, one of the real aims of of this book, or one of the things I really want to get across, is that East Germany, which was a communist dictatorship, and West Germany, which was a liberal parliamentary democracy, were actually incredibly different in terms of how they treated gay men. And moreover, that in some ways, the communist dictatorship, East Germany, was more progressive or more liberal when it came to uh, how it treated uh, male homosexuality. And so, as you said, they both sort of have to deal with this question of what do we, what do, we do with paragraph 175 now that the Nazis have been defeated? And the Allied powers don't want to touch it. The Allied powers don't come to a decision about whether or not to keep this law. And so in West Germany... Sort of surprisingly, this liberal democracy that has tried to sort of make a clean break with the Nazi past, they want to sort of forget it, move on, um, not talk about it anymore. They actually ain't, uh, opt to retain the Nazi version of paragraph 175. And this, again, leads to incredibly um, high levels of prosecution and convictions during this period between 1949, which is when West Germany was created, and 1969, which is when the laws reformed. You have, again, 50,000, over 50,000 convictions of men under paragraph 175. Wow. Yeah. And, and you know, really... Um, horrific stories that I found from talking to people and from going into the archives. Um, just one quick example uh, was a man who was actually convicted under paragraph 175 in 1944. So before the end of World War II, he was convicted by a Nazi court and sent to a psychiatric institution uh, where they were supposed to, quote unquote, cure him of his sexuality. And he is kept there by West German courts for 25 years until 1969. Um, so, I mean, you have these just the incredible devastation um, of, of these lives. East Germany, sort of really surprisingly, um, East Germany uh, is pretty much the exact opposite, uh, or, or not exact opposite, but, but, but it chooses a different path. Um, it, aim, or it, it opts to uh, revert to the earlier version of paragraph 175, which again had a much tighter definition of what was criminalized. And this means that essentially they don't get as many convictions. They don't target uh, gay men for prosecution in the same way uh, that, that West Germany did. And we don't have precise conviction numbers uh, for East Germany, but um, we, the sort of rough figures that we have do suggest that, that it was orders of magnitude less um, in, in terms of the number of men convicted. Uh, and so essentially already in the 1950s, you have these two very different trajectories for these two German states, even though they've both been carved from the same sort of, uh, you know, Nazi Germany um, and have yeah. the same sort of legacy to deal with. Well, and it, it, I thought it was really interesting how, um, you know, one tends to think, okay, on the left, the party, the political parties are going to be more likely to, uh, you know, support gay liberation, a decriminalization, um, but the Social Democratic Party, not necessarily so. Right, right. And so that's another thing that I found really curious is that, um, you know, the how the parties uh, 
thought about or reacted to to gay liberation, especially once we get into the 70s and 80s, once you have these gay activist movements, it wasn't, it didn't sort of map on to our assumptions about how different parties are going to, to react. So as you said, I think most Americans would assume, oh, the Social Democratic Party, it's, it's a leftist party, surely it would be in favor. And in some ways that's correct. I mean, when uh, in, in West Germany, when the law was reformed, in uh, 1969, the Social Democratic Party was sort of instrumental in that. But in the 1970s and 1980s, as you have these gay activist movements that are pushing for further reform in the law, they're pushing for um, reparations for queer victims of the Nazis, um, they're pushing for an end to employment blacklists for queer people. Uh, the social the social democrats are in government at this point they they are the ones who hold the chancellorship of of west germany and they aren't really interested in pursuing any of these policies and in fact um helmut schmidt who was the last uh social democratic chancellor of west germany uh he sort of was alleged to have said i'm not the chancellor of the gays uh so he was incredibly opposed to a lot of these efforts and really the in in west germany there are two more sort of minor parties that become uh in some ways the champions of of gay liberation or of, of gay causes and on one hand you have uh the free democratic party um this is a very important although smaller party it's a sort of bourgeois classically liberal party sort of free markets and free you know personal freedoms uh and it had it pretty much was in every government uh other than one in west germany so in a parliamentary system you generally build coalitions and so usually it was sort of the kingmaker it got to decide which of the two bigger parties would be in government and uh the gay activists in the 70s really make a concerted effort to sort of um, build a, an apparatus within the Free Democratic Party and to get gay and lesbian voters to vote for Free Democratic candidates. And this, um, especially in the 1980 election, really seems to pay dividends. The Free Democratic Party has a huge bump in the polls, and at least their own internal strategists seem to argue that this was at least in part because of these uh, gay and lesbian political efforts. So, so, and then, and then around 1980, you also have the formation of the Green Party, um, and the Green Party comes out of all sorts of alternative movements, so the environmental movement, the feminist movement, and also the gay and lesbian uh, liberation movement, and it then becomes a sort of institutional advocate for some of these issues. But again, it also is a, a much more sort of bourgeois party. It is on the left, but it's not the same sort of left as the Social Democratic Party. And interestingly, right now in Germany, you actually have both the Free Democrats and the Greens together in government. They're in coalition with the Social Democratic Party. Um, and in some ways for the Free Democratic Party, I think it's a return to these earlier roots. Very good. We see we, got, we have Michelle connected back with us. Can you hear us, Yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> uh, we, you know, I guess this is our new norm. Um, uh, thank you so much, John, for hanging in there. And so I'm just entering the conversation. Uh, I think a couple of my questions really I wanted to dive into, I mean, just how exactly, you know, the movement began and the differences um, but between the two. And, and I apologize if that's already been covered. No, no, I think that's sort of uh, what we were just about to get into. So, um, yeah, so so as I sort of alluded to, you have um, gay liberation movements, gay and lesbian movements that arise in both East Germany and in West Germany. And um, 
in West Germany, so, so paragraph 175 gets reformed in 1969, and that really leads to a sort of new opening up uh, socially in West Germany. So you have bars and clubs, you have new magazines that are catering to queer people, and it really sort of thickens the social bonds among queer people. And so just one good example of that are personal advertisements. Um, this is sort of what queer people use in the days before <laughs> Grindr. Uh, and um, so all of a sudden you have the ability to not only buy magazines that, you know, have soft pornography and articles about sort of political issues dealing with, with you know, queer people and so on, um, but also whole pages of personal advertisements where uh, someone would say, I'm, you know, a, I don't know, 25-year-old man looking for someone around my age to, to be my boyfriend. And then if you were interested, you would um, call them or write to the, um, write to the magazine and, and they would sort of put you in touch. So, uh, this this really is is revolutionary, and it, it leads to the sort of flourishing subculture for queer people, especially in the big cities in West in West Germany. And out of that um, comes a uh, gay liberation movement, um, and it it really sort of starts with this movie called "It Is Not the Homosexual Who Is Perverse," um, but rather the situation in which he lives. It's sort of a, a mouthful. Um, it's it's not actually a great movie, but it was this incredibly provocative movie that pre premieres in the early 1970s. It I'm, sort of. Tr I'm just going to say, I'm assuming since it's a German movie, that entire title is probably one word, right? You would think, but <laughs> it's, 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 it's a couple more than one. <laughs> uh, and um, uh, so, so it, it travels around the, the country. It premieres in all these different cities. And at each one, it has this incredibly provocative thesis, which is basically that, that queer people are being held back, not so much by the state or by society, but by their own sort of um, sexual desires, right? That they're too busy... Um, having sex with each other to, to sort of take political liberation seriously. And so it's this incredibly polemical movie. It spurs really angry debates. You have a lot of queer people who denounce it as homophobic. Um, but out of those conversations come these new movements. They're generally called action groups. Um, so you have, for instance, the Homosexual Action West Berlin. It's one of the main groups that got started in West Berlin. Um, and you have dozens of these groups that spring up around the country. And they, you know, start organizing um, everything from uh, protests to movie nights. Um, they uh, take the sort of um, invocation in this movie seriously to sort of oppose the commercial subculture. Um, they try, they also go to anti-war protests, sort of Vietnamese, you know, Vietnam protests. Uh, so it's this incredibly broad-based um, and energetic movement. And as I sort of alluded to, they also make efforts to sort of make inroads into the parties, in particular, the free democratic parties. Um, and they really think that they will be able to change the politics of West Germany. Um, so that's, that's the 1970s in West Germany. In East Germany, this is obviously a communist dictatorship. Um, there are still queer people, but there aren't there is not anything like the same social uh, opportunities in part because um, everything is much more tightly controlled, right? Um, everything is sort of uh, done in service of the party and in service of uh, real existing socialism, as it was called. And uh, nonetheless, you do sort of have this opening up very slowly in the 60s and 70s in um, East Germany, especially in East Berlin, which was the largest city. 
And uh, once this movement gets kicked off in West Germany, especially in West Berlin, its members start traveling occasionally to East Germany to sort of check out the scene. Um, many of them are socialists, and so they're, of course, interested in what's going on in communist East Germany. And they start meeting uh, with queer people in East Berlin. And through this sort of exchange, these people in East Berlin get the idea, hey, we should also start an activist movement, right? Our situation isn't perfect. And surely the government will be receptive to the notion that if they, you know, provide some opportunities for queer people, for gay men and lesbians, um, that, you know, that, that will make us better socialists. And so they start meeting, they start meeting privately um, in, in people's apartments, um, but soon that becomes untenable because there's so many people who want to come to these events. And so they, you know, wind up with dozens of people crammed into these tiny East Berlin apartments. And so eventually what they do is they write a petition to the government. Um, again, this is a socialist dictatorship. You don't have the same option of just sort of taking to the streets or, or starting your own club. Again, everything's very tightly controlled. And so they write a petition to the government saying, we would really like to um, be recognized as a sort of interest society for um, uh, homosexuality. And uh, they call themselves uh, the Homosexual Interest Group Berlin. And the government basically gets this petition and freaks out. Um, it's reviewed by all these different bodies within the East German dictatorship, in particular, uh, efforts to sort of um, respond to it are, are spearheaded by the Stasi or the East German secret police. Um, and they essentially, they don't take their, these activists' self-proclamations seriously, right? So the activists are saying, we are good socialist citizens. We just want these sort of very narrow opportunities. And the state says, oh, well, surely this is sort of Western espionage. Surely this is an oppositional movement. Um, and so they basically refuse them official recognition. And there's sort of a, a in the 70s, there's sort of a, a balance that goes on between repression and, and sort of tacit um, acceptance of this group. They actually find space to meet in the villa of Charlotte von Malsdorf, who was a trans woman, uh, probably one of the most colorful figures in um, East German history. Uh, she had allegedly murdered her own father, who was a Nazi at the end of the Nazi period. Um, she had a fascination for uh, items from Imperial Germany, sort of furniture and art and so forth. And she basically sort of by force of will got the East German government to give her this ramshackled villa to turn into a museum for these sort of curios that she had collected from Imperial Germany. So a really again, colorful personality, a tenacious person. And she, you know, meets these activists and sort of says, oh, well, if you're looking for a place to meet, you can meet in the cellar of my museum. So they have a couple of years where they do that. Um, they host all sorts of poetry readings and cabarets, and um, they continue writing petitions to the government uh, to try and improve their situation. And eventually by the end of the 1970s, the police steps in and says, no more, you have to stop. Um, and essentially, they, that's the end of it. So, so by the end of the 1970s, you, you have these incredibly different experiences of activism, um, but both in a lot of ways trying to achieve um, the same thing in, in terms of new levels of respect and acceptance, both from society and from uh, the state. And then in the 1980s, could you take the East German <laughs> side in particular? Because that part just kind of blew my mind. 
Yeah, and so, yeah, the 1980s, um, I think that also when I was doing the research, it blew my mind as well, right? So um, I guess just by way of, of lead into this, I had sort of approached this research back when I was starting in 2015 uh, with this sort of assumption that I think a lot of us have that, you know, the the sort of democratic West is good and the communist East is evil. Um, this sort of easy, simplistic Cold War dichotomy. And so in this research, I had thought, oh, well, surely it'll be a happy story of what happens in the West and a sort of story of persecution in the East. And as I've already sort of alluded to, that is not what I found. And the 1980s are sort of the most visceral or visible example of that. So this, in, this initial group, the HIB, gets shut down at the end of the 1970s in East Berlin. Um, a couple of years later, though, in Leipzig, which is East Germany's second city, um, and it... Uh, so you have some gay gay men who meet there, and they get the idea of organizing a new gay activist group within the Protestant church. So anyone who knows anything about East German history uh, probably knows that the Protestant church was the only nominally independent group in the country um, because so many people, so many East Germans belonged to it at the end of World War II. Uh, the Soviets felt like they couldn't sort of um, you know, take away its authority or take away its property in the same way that it, it had done to other uh, mass organizations. So it, remain, it remains somewhat uh, independent. And um, in the 1980s, a lot of oppositional groups or alternative movements actually organize under its umbrella. So you have a peace movement, an environmentalist movement, feminist movements, all organized under the umbrella of the Protestant church. And so these two gay men get the idea of doing the same thing. And uh, it's incredibly popular um, and it spreads around the country. By the early 1980s, you have um, around a dozen of these groups spread around the country, all under the umbrella of the Protestant church. And this freaks out the Stasi even more than the HIV had, because not only do they see efforts to get gay men and lesbians new rights or, or sort of opportunities as dangerous, they also see the Protestant church and anything to do with the Protestant church as inherently dangerous. And so um, essentially they start coming up with ad hoc ways of trying to dampen interest in this. They um, recruit ever more informants to figure out what's going on. They try to figure out if there are sort of Western contacts. Again, they think that this might have something to do with Western espionage or Western sabotage of East Germany. Um, and finally, they realize these efforts are not having any effect, right? These groups are continuing to expand. And at the same time, an increasing number of bureaucrats within the Stasi, within the secret police, they start sort of authoring memos saying, well, these activists actually have a point, right? They are confronting homophobia. They, um, you know, people do beat them up and, and rob them. They don't really have any bars to go to. They, you know, they can't live with their partners, so on and so forth. And so the Stasi comes up with a new strategy, which is to give in to the political and policy demands of these groups and thereby essentially remove any impetus for them to continue to exist, right? So it's a deeply cynical move, but basically they say, well, if we solve all of your problems, you won't need to organize anymore. You know, you can, you can go to the disco or whatever. You don't need to be a political group. And then we've solved our problem. And so in the mid to late 1980s, 
East Germany just adopts a massive slew of pro-gay policies like nothing I've ever seen before anywhere else. Um, so you have uh, the age of consent, which was unequal, is made equal um, between heterosexual and homosexual encounters. You have the a new policy that allows queer people to serve in the military openly. And not only does that, but actually instructs officers in the military to actively deconstruct homophobia. Um, you have uh, the censorship that had existed on discussing queer issues is relaxed immensely. Um, there are new secular groups that are founded for queer people, um, including groups in the Free German Youth, which is the official youth group. Um, you can sort of think of it as a communist Boy Scout. So you start getting actual chapters of this group specifically for queer people. Um, it becomes um, encouraged for ordinary East German citizens to attend meetings at these groups to sort of educate themselves about homosexuality. Uh, the government works with these groups and with the church groups to spread awareness and information about HIV and AIDS. So the list just goes on and on. And you, you, you sort of, again, are, are flabbergasted looking at this, thinking this is a Still, this is still a repressive communist state, and yet it is actually reacting um, in a somewhat constructive manner to criticism from from an oppositional group. And so, um, that that was sort of, in some ways, the the biggest find of this book, and the most shocking or surprising thing to me was the the degree to which East Germany, um, in its last years, made an effort to improve the lives of its queer citizens. Somewhere here in my home, I have a DVD of Coming Out, which was uh, yes. a, a movie to talk a bit about this, because that was when I first, I mean, I, I saw it many years after it was released, but that was when I first kind of got in an inkling of, oh, wait, there was gay life <laughs> under the East German government. Right, right. No, so this movie, this is another part of this opening up, is that they commission um, the first sort of feature film about homosexuality. Um, and this, again, this goes through the highest levels. There's a member of the Politburo who's sort of tasked with reviewing cultural matters who has to personally sign off on this. Um, and it ironically premieres on November 9th, 1989, which is the night the Berlin Wall falls. Um, and is sort of, I think, a, in, in some ways, a nice encapsulation of, of the sort of unrest and the, the changes that East Germany was undergoing um, in these years. What do you think, or um, if you could talk a little bit about, you know, how that impacted the social acceptance of LGBTQIA plus in, you know, during this time? Yeah, so um, I think uh, as, as sort of we, we talked a little bit about, um, the real focus of this book is on the relationship between queer people and the two German states, right? And so one of the real questions that I... Um, was always interested in and, and find, you know, hard to answer is the question of the relationship between um, sort of queer people and non-queer people and, and how the sort of, you know, straight majority um, thinks about, treats, reacts to all of this. And, and then also how, um, you know, it's one thing to look at a policy that's written down on a piece of paper, and it's a very different thing to figure out what actual effect this had on the lives of the people who are supposed to be affected by this. So, I think what's clear, what, what's clear from both the written documents and from the East Germans who I interviewed is that these changes had a massive positive impact on, 
on their lives. Um, you know, all of a sudden there were new discos and bars that they could go to. There was a sense that they, you know, were somewhat safer, that if they uh, were beat up by hooligans, um, so, you know, it, it, there were still lots of cruising sites in these major cities, toilets, parks, train stations, where you knew that you could go and, you know, uh, look for sex. And at the same time, there were sort of um, gangs of people who would wait there and look for um, usually gay men to rob or blackmail. And so you had a new sense that, you know, if you went cruising and you were attacked, you could actually go to the police and they might do something. Um, so, so it definitely had a positive impact. That said, I think, as in any other context, uh, these changes take time to work, right? It, change like this doesn't happen overnight, even if a policy changes. And so one really good example of that is this policy around queer people in the military. And I found um, a petition from someone, uh, a petition right at the very end of East Germany's existence. He, he writes in to uh, the, the new prime minister and says, well, I was fired from the military because I'm a homosexual. And uh, he, he had already written several other petitions. And every time the government had said, well, no, 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 we don't do that anymore. So you, you must be mistaken. Uh, and, it, you know, it, I guess I, my, my tendency would be to credit what this person is saying rather than what the sort of communist state is, is saying in return. So I, I believe that he probably was fired because he was a gay man. Um, and, and so it, it's one of those things where you have to balance it and say, yes, this change had real positive impacts. Um, and yet it was still a secretive, repressive, you know, communist dictatorship. And um, even in the best of situations, this sort of social change and um, change that requires people to reevaluate how they think and how they act to fellow human beings, it, it takes time to achieve. Throughout all of these regimes, um, there's this split, obviously. These are, are laws against gay men, not against lesbians. So talk a bit about where did that, how did that come from? Why did that keep getting promulgated through vastly different types of governments? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. I, this, to the extent that I have any disappointments about this book, it's that it isn't more of a book about gay men and lesbians. There are, you know, Readers who pick it up will find plenty of, of, you know, lesbians, especially in the chapters around queer activism. Um, but that said, because the laws, because paragraph 175 um, only ever criminalized male homosexuality, that really drove a lot of the research and a lot of the sources that were available to me. Um, I think there, there are a whole host of reasons why female homosexuality wasn't criminalized in Germany and, and why in most countries it, it wasn't criminalized. And I think ultimately a lot of them have to do with misogyny, that essentially for a long time societies did not take uh, women's agency seriously and certainly not uh, women's sexual agency. And so um, I'm actually the, the next book that I'm working on is about lesbians in Nazi Germany. Um, and so I, I can sort of say a little bit about specifically that case where um, you have lesbian women are st still uh, persecuted. Um, they do still face repercussions for, for living um, or for acting on their uh, sexuality. But um, because the law doesn't criminalize it, they, 
you know, face it in different ways. And it's usually when um, uh, they've committed other acts or identity or have other identities that make them legible as falling outside of the sort of Nazi racial and eugenic project. Um, but the, but in, in the Nazi sort of persecution of, of queer people, there were voices that wanted lesbianism to be explicitly criminalized. And um, so we have some of these debates, we have some of these conversations, and we can actually see why it was um, that the Nazis opted not to. And there's a, a really um, poignant sort of memo from the Nazi era about female homosexuality uh, written by a um, high-level bureaucrat in the Ministry of Justice. And he basically lays out the reasons why female homosexuality shouldn't be criminalized. And it has to do with the fact that in Nazi Germany, women were generally discouraged or not allowed to hold jobs. They certainly were you know, not given um, opportunities to rise in politics or within the party. Um, they were mostly conceived of as being wives and mothers. And so uh, what this meant is that when it came to homosexuality, I, I mentioned earlier, there was this fear of the seduction of youth, this, this fear that gay men were going out and seducing youth into lives of homosexuality. And with lesbians, the belief was, well, as mothers and wives, they are confined to the home. They don't have the same opportunities to go out and sort of seduce young women and girls into uh, this, this sort of lifestyle. And um, so that was one of the main reasons. The other reason was that, again, in sort of discounting um, women's sexual agency, uh, this, this ministry official argued that even if a woman had had sex with other women, they could still produce children. There was, there was nothing that said that they couldn't, whereas there was this belief that sort of once a man had sort of set down this path, uh, he was uh, sort of irretrievably lost for, for the Nazi cause. So, so really it has to do with, with misogyny and the sort of restrictions placed on women's agency in these, in these periods. And you see that um, continuing in West Germany. There's arguments made um, so, so advocates for repealing paragraph 175 go to the constitutional court and essentially say um, this law, because it doesn't criminalize female homosexuality, it breaks the constitutional um, mandate that there be equality of the sexes. And the Supreme Court, the, the constitutional court, uh, looks at this and says, well, no, because male homosexuality poses all these social risks around the seduction of youth and so forth. Um, and female homosexuality, again, because women generally aren't working and when they are working, they aren't occupying positions of authority. They don't, it, there's not the same risk. Um, and so, you know, it, that's really what's at the root there, which, which isn't to say that, you know, lesbian women still face huge amounts of discrimination and persecution in these periods, but it's not done through the same sort of legal channels that always leave a visible historical record. Um, yeah, sorry, I, I feel like <laughs> I could talk a lot more about this topic, but... We're learning so much in this hour, or, you know, close to an hour, and, of course, reading the book, but um, to add to John's question, I mean, could we say a little bit more about transgender rights and you know, the focus on the transgender community? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, 
uh, alongside having uh, essentially the first homosexual rights movement in history, um, Germany also is the home to a lot of the first sort of trans rights activism and um, and and sort of trans culture. And this begins, um, you know, in the Weimar period. You have sort of trans advocacy groups, and you also it's important to mention that at this time period in the sort of late 19th and early 20th centuries. All of these definitions that we're so comfortable with today, um, whether it's homosexuality or queer or gay or trans, they're very much sort of still in flux. And so I think one really important thing, especially for those earlier periods, it is it's impossible to write the history of one without the history of, of the other, because um, at the time, you know, for instance, um, Magnus Hirschfeld, who was one of the first sort of um, queer rights campaigners and, you know, had some problematic aspects, but was really a, a sort of forerunner of a lot of modern day advocacy. He had this idea of there being the quote unquote third sex. Um, and this included both, um, you know, people who did not uh, behave in the sort of gender appropriate way as well as um, people who had sex with members of, of the same sex. And so um, this basically sort of encapsulates groups that we would both think of as gay today, as well as trans. Um, and so uh, I think that's an important point to, to, to bring up. Um, similarly, when you look at um, Nazi persecution, uh, a lot of the queer people who are persecuted, they might fall in the Nazi framework under the category of homosexuality. But when we go back and review these files today, we can, you know, we may not be able to say this person was definitively trans, um, but using a term from um, historian Jen Mannion, uh, who is, is a historian of uh, early modern um, American and British queer history, um, I, I think we can very clearly say that these were people who were transing gender, right? These were people who, uh, you know, people who uh, the Nazis thought of as women who were dressing in a masculine fashion or who the Nazis thought of as men who were dressing in a feminine fashion. And so again, you can see a lot of overlap between the persecution of, um, of gay and lesbian people and the persecution of trans people in Nazi Germany. Again, you, you see a sort of blurring of these categories and of these distinctions. Once you get into um, especially the activist movements um, of the 1970s and 1980s, um, you obviously start getting a little more clearly demarcated um, identities. Uh, obviously, I mentioned Charlotte von Malsdorf, who, uh, you know, again, in, in the sort of mushiness of categories, she referred to herself in, in different ways. She referred to herself um, as, as a gay man at various times. She referred to herself as a, a quote-unquote transvestite, um, which is obviously a term we don't use today, but at the time didn't have the same sort of derogatory um, connotations that it does today. Uh, and then you also have a huge amount of... Um, dispute or disagreement around the question of gender, and especially um, many of the queer men who occupied these movements or were active in these movements, some of them fell on the side of um, sort of socialism. They saw the fight for gay rights as a subset of the fight against capitalism. And then there were others who labeled themselves feminists and saw gender as a much more important category or lens. And so some of these activists um, you know, they sort of blurred the line between what we might consider drag and then sort of trans identities. Um, and so, uh, you know, you essentially you have gender and um, people who 
uh, challenge gender and, and transgender as incredibly important um, members of these movements and of these histories um, stretching all the way back to the 19th century. In the introduction to your book, you have a sentence that caught my attention, and I guess this is more for the political science nerds among our audience, but you wrote, quote, confronted as they were with the Nazi legacy of imprisonment and murder, these activists strove in ever-changing ways to win rights from and assert privileges against the East and West German governments, unquote. And in the United States, we often talk about the idea of, you know, natural rights, these rights are yours, they're yours. The government can take them away by force, but, you know, you don't win the rights. You kind of stop the government from, from uh, discriminating or something. What, is there a, a similar view or a different view in, in Germany? And I'm sure it has probably deep historical roots. That's a really interesting idea. I think, um, I guess what I immediately jumped to is this difference between positive and negative rights or positive and negative liberties, um, which I, you're nodding, so I hope <laughs> this is making sense to you. Which, um, So essentially, in the U.S., we have a fundamentally negative view of liberty, which is that we see liberties or freedoms as freedoms from, and usually freedoms from government interference, right? So, so we are free when we take something away, when we subtract something, usually, again, government interference. In Europe, and in Germany in particular, that view is balanced with what is typically thought of as a positive view of freedom, which is that not only is freedom something that you have in an absence or in a vacuum, but freedoms can also be things that are granted to you or guaranteed to you by government action. So um, a good idea of, of a sort of positive freedom would be universal health care, right? This is something that is provided by the government. And if in the U.S., we obviously don't think of that as a right. Um, in Germany, they do. Uh, another good example is that um, the family is under the special protection of the government in Germany. It's, this is in their constitution. Uh, and, and in fact, when, when marriage equality was passed in 2017, there was a question about whether or not this might violate that provision of the constitution. Thankfully, the constitutional court held that it did not, um, but, but that was a question. And so I think when, um, and I think this is also one of the reasons why talking about queerness in the state in Germany specifically makes a lot of sense, because not only were these individuals in both German states um, looking for freedom from government interference, but they oftentimes were looking for specific forms of you know, rights, privileges, recognition that would be guaranteed by the government. So uh, one example of this um, in West Germany might be uh, restitution for victims of Nazism. Um, that's something that the state uh, can provide. Uh, and so, so yeah, I mean, I think uh, there is that sort of discrepancy or, or difference. Um, obviously, in East Germany, you, you, the, the sort of East German conception of freedom is entirely of positive freedoms, right? I mean, this is a socialist state that didn't really buy into the notion of individual liberties. Um, so uh, there's a lot of work done on sort of what human rights meant in East Germany, and it meant something very different from what, what it means in, in Western countries. So um, yeah, and I think that's one thing that I really was trying to sort of excavate is the different ways that these activist movements were approaching the state, the different ways they were sort of couching their, their demands or their requests um, in terms of what they wanted. 
I like the way that, you know, the book kind of ended. There's a section of uh, answering the question of what is liberation? And yeah, and, you know, the example of East Germany, could that be applied? The answer is, you know, probably yes. Maybe happening right now, especially in, in countries where LGBTQIA plus people continue to be religiously persecuted. But, you know, if you could talk a little bit about, um, religious persecution and just this example of East Germany and how this could really apply to many other countries. I think that'd be a good way to end the program. Yeah, Yeah, no. So, I mean, I think the biggest takeaway that I have from East Germany, um, well, really, I guess there are two takeaways. One is that um, liberation um, can really happen anywhere, right? We can have a country that is one of the most inflexible, intolerant sort of dictatorships of the 20th century that enacts this incredibly progressive platform of, of rights for queer people. And so, so I take from that, that that this is something that can happen anywhere. And I think in some sense, that's a real cause for hope. So if we think about um, how, you know, all over the world and also in our own country, there is, as you say, religious inspired, but not just religious inspired persecution of gay and lesbian, trans, queer people. Um, I, it, it gives me hope that these things can be reversed, that they can be rolled back, and that that change, that that progress can actually sometimes happen very quickly, um, especially when it's uh, it comes out of the the efforts of activists who are you know close to the issue and and um, who you know oftentimes in the case of East Germany these these activists were incredibly courageous, tenacious people um, who who had the sort of ability and the foresight to challenge their government in these ways. The other takeaway I I have for it, though, is that, and this is sort of where that question, what is liberation, comes into play, is that uh, liberation takes different forms in different contexts, different countries. um, Queer people will be looking for different things. They'll be asking for different things. They'll have different relationships to their states. And what that means is that we can't come into another country and simply say, this is what you will look like when you are liberated, bing, bang, boom, you're done. Um, And so I think what that means is that, especially us in the West, when we are looking at, in particular, non-Western countries where queer populations are striving um, for progressive change, um, we need to have a certain degree of humility um, and listen to activists on the ground there about what they need and what they want and not assume that the things that we want are necessarily the same as what they want. And so this is, you know, there's been a lot of scholarship on this issue of quote unquote gay imperialism of essentially, you know, sort of chauvinistic, usually white male gay activists going into um, in particular non-Western countries and sort of imposing their own views. And so I think actually trying to deconstruct this cold war uh, stereotype actually fits very well with with that work as well. Um, so those are my two sort of big takeaways from from um, I guess interrogating what liberation is through the lenses of East and West Germany. The, the uh, focus of your, of your book is on the Cold War period, but could you bring us up to date then on Germany? I mean, we've just from what I've followed in the news, of course. I mean, they've gone through a lot of the same types of kind of seismic changes. And and I think and I think here it's it's maybe more even so in the public or excuse me the the populace's attitudes, but also reflected in laws and and, and marriage equality and such. So I, I kind of want can you bring us up to date? And as part of that, if you would 
here in the United States, you know, incredible change in, in these attitudes. However, the political anima seems to have shifted largely to say, okay, we accept gay men and lesbian women, but on that LGBT, we're going to focus on the T part and really discriminate against them. Yeah. Is that happening in Germany or are they avoiding that? Um, those are really fabulous questions. So um, I guess just very briefly about sort of what happens after the wall falls. Um, Germany obviously reunifies. And I think actually a lot of um, the sort of progress of East Germany does make its way sort of into reunified Germany. The most visible example of this is the paragraph 175, which was still on the books, um, setting a higher age of consent in West Germany. It's finally abolished uh, four years after reunification in 1994. Um, but you also, I think, have just a much broader set of um, tolerance, especially among politicians, that sort of makes its way into the reunified parliament. Um, you have a new social democratic and green government that takes the reins in 1998 under, unfortunately, Gerhard Schröder, who, of course, is now Moscow's stooge. But <laughs> that's a conversation for another day. Um, but nonetheless, this government is sort of more open to to queer um, political uh, efforts. And I think we see that sort of progress continuing. We have marriage equality in 2017. Um, and today, actually, the, the new German government is considering a law um, that will essentially make it easier for um, trans people to to sort of get the, the appropriate documentation that reflects their um, their their gender. Uh, and so, um, you know, the, it, it has continued to have this sort of progressive impetus that I think is the legacy of these two histories and, and of course, of the longer history stretching back all the way to, to Imperial Germany. Um, in terms of today, uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's horrifying what we're witnessing, right? The extreme persecution that trans people are facing um, in, in our country, in England, in many other countries um, around the world. It's, I think, Germany has so far, um, you know, cer certainly these, these exist in Germany. These, these impulses exist in Germany. I don't think they are quite as prominent yet, um, but I also worry that it is just a matter of time. I also want to say that there has been a concerted effort on the part of transphobic individuals, um, in particular so-called TERFs, um, to divide gay and lesbian and bisexual people from trans people. And I think this is, you know, as I've tried to sort of make the case in this conversation, um, when it, historically, I don't think you can do this. I don't think you can separate, you know, trans people from, from uh, gay and lesbian and bisexual people. And um, I also think you, the, the idea that you can separate them politically today is very much wrongheaded. And I think in our country, we see that in the fact that we see both incredibly transphobic legislation, but we also see um, the so-called don't say gay law in Florida that um, I believe just passed. Um, we just witnessed the uh, Supreme Court hearings uh, for Judge um, Jackson, and it, the some of the senators there made very clear that they would like uh, to revisit the Obergefell decision that granted marriage equality. So I, you know, I think there has been this concerted effort to divide the sort of queer political constituency um, and that that is both, um, it, it is both wrong and stupid. I was going to ask if your opinion is, uh, you know, that some of these, these bills that are popping up that become even more homophobic or transphobic or acts of uh, desperation you know, for a, a, a historian like yourself or someone who 
you know, knows of the reactions from past governments or leaders, yeah, is this a sign of, you know, desperation or losing the control or losing interest? We have to do something desperate. Um, I think it is a sign of desperation. I think it is a sign that these people fear that the sort of that social norms are changing irrevocably. Um, so that and that's sort of my my sort of optimistic hope as well is that that these things are changing for the better and that that they won't go back. At the same time, as a German historian, and you know, the twentieth century in Germany is full of incredible horror and trauma. It's hard for me not to also look at this and and worry that that they might succeed, um, and and that things you know I I have the knowledge that things can get much worse very quickly, um, and so I think to my mind that is a sign that all of us need to pull together and continue advocating um, you know for. Uh, for trans people, for queer people, um, and to, you know, continue to raise our voices, to continue to speak out, to continue to protest, and to not take the rights that we have for granted. I think my last question is much easier than anything we've talked about so far, which is just tell us a bit now, you've got the book out, you're, you're doing a book tour, is it, are you doing in-person stuff, and what is the reaction that you're getting? Yeah, so I'm I'm obviously doing virtual events. I'll be doing a couple in-person events um, in D.C., in New York, um, in Boston, and uh, in San Francisco, sort of in the spring and the summer. Um, so far, it's been an incredibly positive um, reaction. People, I think, you know, there's a real desire and a real thirst for queer history. Um, I, you know, think that Americans are incredibly interested about um, this history, both here and abroad, there's also this sort of, I think the sense of Berlin as being this special place for queer people has has made people interested in, in what happened there in the 20th century. So it's been an incredibly positive reaction um, so far. And I obviously really enjoy speaking with um, folks like both of you about about this research and about the sort of implications of it for, for today. I think we have one last question actually from a viewer, John. Yeah, someone just wrote, uh, and actually first writes, I'm trans and have lived in Leipzig, but my German is not good enough to research this kind of stuff if it's not translated. So the question is, what were the acolytes of Magnus Hirschfeld doing in post-Cold War and, and Cold War Germany? That's a really excellent question. Um, so Magnus Hirschfeld dies shortly after the Nazis take power. He's actually on a, on a tour internationally when they take power, and he never returns to Germany. Um, you do have some of these individuals, a, a lot of the people from the Weimar era do die in, in the Nazi period, um, but some of them do survive. So uh, one example, for instance, is Kurt Hiller, uh, who's a communist intellectual. He's a gay man. Um, he was a very close collaborator with Hirschfeld, although they broke in the late 20s over, over a piece of legislation. Um, he's still around and is sort of involved in trying to um, resurrect some of, of the sort of Weimar era movement in post-war West Germany. Ultimately, though, those efforts sort of founder on the extreme anti-gay animus of West Germany. Um, there are a lot of these groups that try and get off the ground, some homophile publications, uh, and they ultimately are all the sort of victim of censorship and of oppression from, from the government in West Germany. 
Samuel, I want to thank you so much for spending the afternoon with us and for this book. So highly encourage you to pick up a copy if you don't have your copy yet. And it's States of Liberation by Samuel Close Hunicky. Samuel, uh, we can't wait to see you when you get to San Francisco, right? Yeah, no, thank you. Um, I, uh, thanks again for having me on. This was incredibly um, fun and rewarding to sort of chat about this. And um, yes, I'd love to see you out in the Bay Area someday. Back to you, John. Thanks again to our special guest, Samuel Close Hunecki. Last but not least, thanks to all of you for watching and listening online. You can find more programs at commonwealthclub.org slash MMS. Stay safe and have a good weekend.